open your Bibles back to Romans chapter 8 in what has been dubbed by so many the greatest chapter in the Bible, and I would have no argument with those who've made that assessment. You might be uh, curious to know that today is the 90th, 9-0 sermon and study that we've done in the book of Romans, and we're not halfway done with it yet, so I'm just amazed at how much God has said in so few words. I want to confess, when I come to the study of these passages week in and week out, I'm just floored and amazed. I almost feel like every verse demands a 10-week study. Uh, But since I do want to finish Romans before I die, we're going to keep some kind of pace. We've been looking in a context that begins in verse 28 and goes through verse 30. Uh, Our attention has been in verses 29 and 30, but it's connected to verse 28 because verse 29 begins with the word for, which in English, as you know, and in Greek is a subordinate clause. So let's go back and get the, the running context. Paul says in verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There exists an instinct in every caring person to supply that care to someone, to really anyone who is insecure, unassured, or in a hard way. Let me explain what I mean. Have you ever sat next to someone on a plane who's fearful of flying? Have you ever been next to a child in the middle of a severe thunderstorm? Ever sat next to a son or daughter or even a young child or a boy or a girl on the front car, in the front car of a giant roller coaster when this was their first ride? Maybe you've been in an emergency room with a a child who needed stitches. I've done that many times. Maybe you've stood along the bedside of someone who was going in for surgery. And as you know, if it's your surgery, all surgery is major surgery, right? You know that moment where you you have this intuition to offer some kind of support, some kind of assurance. Let me come at it from a different angle. What do you do when you see someone who's just lost a family member or a friend? The answer to all these questions is that we all know what it is to give comfort, to give encouragement to provide assurance and assistance. When you look at all of those uh, uh, examples, most of which I have lived through, you, you certainly know what it's mean to look someone in the eyes and say something like this. It's not very theological, it's not very deep, but it's well-intended and well-meaning. You just look at them and say, it's okay. It's okay. Sometimes being outside of the moment of a trial provides perspective that it is okay, it's going to be okay differently than can be felt when you're in the middle of that trial. I even found myself last week saying that to my dog. 
my dog, my dog has an issue with thunder and lightning. And if you were to go to my backyard and look at our what used to be a screened-in porch, uh, when thunder claps, she jumps. I don't know why she couldn't have jumped through the same part every time. But uh, I have three different holes in my screens, which I need to fix with some kind of a titanium because she just jumps through them. Well, it was thundering and lightning. She came right up to me. She jumped into my lap on the couch, don't tell Kim, and, um, and was trembling. And I was just petting my dog Daisy, just saying, it's okay, it's okay. Why? Because it's intuitive in all of us to provide comfort for someone or something in the middle of an insecure moment. What we're attempting to do is provide calming confidence to another who seems to have little and need much. In a sense, that's exactly what Paul is doing in the verses that we're studying right now. Remember the context. Let's grab the whole, the whole flow of this. Romans 8, verses 16 to 18. The Spirit himself, this whole chapter is about the Spirit's work in our life, our life with him and in him. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs of, with Christ. If indeed we ooh, suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. And then verse 18, for I consider. I have thought about it. I have meditated on it. I have, I have marinated in this fact that the sufferings of this present time, the difficulty in life, the hard times we experience and face are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That leads Paul to tell us that the Holy Spirit knows and cares about our struggles so much so that he actually prays for us. Remember, leading up to Romans 8, 28, in those uh, two verses in uh, 26 and 27, Paul says the Spirit knows our weakness. He understands that we get in a cul-de-sac, we run into a dead end, we don't even know how to pray. At that point, <clears throat> at that point he picks up our prayer and finishes it. He prays for us. You could almost say he prays instead of us because we don't know how to pray, taking great care for us. And then we know Romans 8, 28, right? If you're in the middle of a trial, don't you want to know that God causes how many things? All things to work together for good for those who are Christians. That is a great comfort. Look beyond our text that we're looking at today. Verse 31, God is for us. Verse 32, with Christ, God has given us everything we need. Verse 34, Jesus also, along with the Spirit, intercedes for us. He prays for us. Verses 35 to 39, nothing can separate us from Christ's love, which crescendos into verse 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God himself, who is Christ and loves us because of Christ. Then Paul began this great chapter. You know it so well. You have it memorized. There is now, therefore, no, what's the word? Condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who love Christ. That's Paul's way of saying, it's okay. I know what, you, I know what you're going through as far as I can. And beyond that, God knows what you're going through. So much that the Spirit of God and the Son of God pray for you and it's, it's okay. 
Take a deep breath. It's okay. Nowhere does that message come into fuller focus than in the verses that we're studying this morning and, in fact, in the last two studies. This section of your Bible should be earmarked, tattered, underlined, highlighted, ready for those times of trials because God has said, for those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. It's not if trials come, James says. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. They are coming. And I just want to pull aside for a second and say, I'm aware of people in our own body who are experiencing deep, hurtful, painful seasons right now. This is a passage for you. I'm also very aware that there are some who aren't in that season. They're, they're in a season of enjoying grace. Everything's good. Health is good. Money's fine. No big trials. Can I just tell you, you better tuck this chapter away. You better leave it earmarked. You better turn the page down because this is a, something, this is a, a section of Scripture and pillars of theology that all of us will need eventually. Well, in our last two studies, we've looked at this, what we've called a golden chain of salvation. Paul links together five verbs, verbs of, of which God is the subject. These are five things that God does. The first two are, are, are so controversial. They have, have given, been given such attention in our day and in church history. We had to stop, pull the car over, and spend a week on each of these terms. The first is foreknown. God foreknew us. And the second is predestined. We, we looked at those in some detail. The controversy and misunderstanding that come from the mere mentioning of those two words demanded that we look into those subjects intently. But today, we're going to cover the whole chain together because I think that's exactly what Paul intends. We're taking sometimes 45 minutes on a word. Paul gave these two verses that can be read in just a few seconds. No footnotes. No explanation, no writers, no end notes. The whole point he's trying to make is to simply look into the soul of someone who is trying to compare the glories to come with the sufferings that were experienced and look into our eyes and say, it's okay, and let me tell you why. Let me tell you why you can say it is well with my soul. As I said, these two verses are built around five verbs. All of these verbs have God as the subject. Let's look at them, the, the first two, very briefly, and then we'll dive into the, the last three and look at them together. We'll look, first of all, at the first link in God's golden chain of salvation, foreknown. That's the first link, foreknown. We are foreknown, foreknown by God. Foreknown, as we said, is different than foresight. To foresee is different than to foreknow. Foreknow, actually, the original language has the idea of to love beforehand, to forelove, F-O-R-E, love. Love beforehand, set love and affection on someone beforehand. Those whom he foreknew. It doesn't say, by the way, he knows something about the people. It says he knew the people himself. Those, it's, it's the, 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 we are the object, Christians, those whom he foreknew. Now what Paul's going to do, we've said it before, is he's going to try to say it's okay by saying this. 
You can say it's okay, it's well with your soul, no matter what's happening, there is a grand resolution in heaven for you in time or in eternity by looking all the way to eternity past as well as all the way to eternity future and seeing and knowing what God is doing in between. This whole chapter, we've said it over and over. I'm so amazed that God has not put you and me in the position of of Job or Abraham, where he tested Abraham and Abraham didn't know that. He had a conversation with Satan and then Job was the object of Satan's wrath and Job didn't know that. And yet they trusted God. You and I, in the passage before us, know exactly what God is doing and why he's doing it. We really have no excuse not to trust. No excuse not to look at God and hear him say to us through the Apostle Paul, listen, got this covered. It's okay. We know because God knew the individuals themselves that he was predestined to be made like Christ. He didn't look down through the corridors of time and see who would choose him, and then he chose them. No, instead, he's the object. The central issue is that, in looking at foreknowledge, is an individual's faith the cause or the result of God's predestination? And it's obviously the result. God's chosen, and therefore we believe. We believe because he makes us, gives us grace to believe. Next, we looked at predestination. The second word, predestined. God predestined us. For those whom he foreknew, here it is, he also, in addition to that, predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. We looked at so many angles of this in our last study. What is predestination? What is it not? It makes some people shiver and it makes some people shout. Predestination is a precious gift of God to an unbeliever. It's an act, Sam Storm says, in eternity past, which God ordained or decreed that those on whom he had set his saving love, that's foreknowledge, would inherit eternal life. That's predestination, predestined. You're gonna inherit eternal life. That's the destination. And remember that Paul says this without a lot of explanation. He says it and says, this is something that you should believe, not this is something I'm going to take great pains to make you understand. I've been thinking about that over the last few weeks. If, if these were subjects that Paul expected us to have great acumen in and great understanding and wisdom in, and if he expected us to be able to, to come to anyone who didn't believe in these concepts and explain it without any rebuttal, don't you think he would have done more than just mention them in this passage? Yet all he does is mention them in this passage. Why? Because he's using them for the purpose of saying, think about what God has done. It's okay. This is all intended to comfort and encourage us not to create theological conundrums or debates. He predestined us. And you can easily get off on what predestination means or doesn't mean and miss the point that he's saying here. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of Jesus. The whole reason he chooses people, the whole reason he isolates people, the whole reason he calls people, as we'll see in a moment, is to make them like his son. 
It's often asked, well, if this is the golden chain of salvation, which deals with justification and glorification, which it does, where is sanctification? It's right there. Sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. We have predestined, because he loved us beforehand, before the time began, he predestined us to be like Jesus. That's the focus of our predestination. And again, we study that in great detail in our last study. That brings us to number three. And we're gonna, these, this third one will take a little attention, and the last two will be very quick. Let me just give you some heads up on that. Called. Called. God called. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these, verse 30, whom he predestined, he also called. Now, the second you see the word called in the New Testament, you have to stop and say, what does this mean? Because there are two kinds of calling in the New Testament. Theologians call this a general call and an effectual call. Let's look at both of them for a moment because we have to figure out what's Paul talking about here in this calling. The general call that everyone knows about, that everyone can quote, is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 to 14. Jesus talking about an invitation to salvation. He illustrates this with a bank, illustrates it with a banquet. This is what he says. Matthew twenty two eleven. But when the king came to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? You weren't dressed appropriately. And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus says this, for many are called but few are chosen. Many are called and few are chosen. That phrase, many are called but few are chosen, reflects the biblical balance between God's sovereignty and man's human responsibility. The invitations to this wedding feast had been sent out. They went out to many people, if not everyone in the community. That represents everyone who would hear the gospel. Everyone to whom the gospel was meant to be heard is everyone. Everyone it was sent to. But only a few of those who heard the call were willing to accept it and thereby be among the chosen. The point is this. The gospel invitation is offered to everyone. And you say, well, what about the people who haven't heard it? That's called missions. We're to take the gospel invitation to everyone. And remember, it's not that God's, it's not God's will that that everyone would perish. God is up, not up in heaven throwing down lightning bolts of judgment willy-nilly just saying, I can't wait to give them what they deserve. Remember 2 Peter 3, 9? He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We have to remember that's the heart of God. But not everyone wants God. And many who claim to want him do not want God on his terms. Those who come to saving faith in Christ come because of the willingness to accept his sovereign, gracious provision in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and those who are lost, excluded from the kingdom of God, left out of this wedding feast in Matthew 22, do so because of a willing rejection of God's sovereign grace. That's the general call. 
He calls all, please come to me. But that's not the calling that's talked about here. There's another kind of calling. Theologians call this effectual calling. It has an effect. What God intends to happen with this calling actually does happen. This is God's call that's mentioned here in verse 30. Because it's connected to his foreknowledge, which actually happened according to God's will. His predestination, which happened according to God's heart and God's will. Therefore, his calling has to be in keeping with that. This is his effectual calling. This is not the only place that talks about that. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. It was for this he called you. So the choosing and the calling go hand in glove. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us, said in tandem, saving and calling, with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. Notice there in Timothy that... God's calling is holy. It's different than the general call. And it also works his purposes. But probably the place where the effectual calling is described most vividly, most stark contrast to uh, the general call is in John chapter 6. You can just listen. John six thirty five. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. I love that accent on man's responsibility. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, believe. Just believe. But I say to you that if you have seen me and you, but you have seen me and you do not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Did you hear that? All that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. Can we just take a footnote on that? Can I just blow your mind for a moment? Do you understand that a believer, when you believe in the gospel, that is the Father giving you as a gift to the Son. All that the Father gives me all those the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 38, I have not come down to heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all of all that he has given to me, I lose nothing. Talk about security of salvation and assurance of salvation. We're a gift from the Father to the Son, and the Son says he won't lose anyone. And I would say Jesus is trustworthy in that. But he will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Then down in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. John 6, 65, he was saying, For this reason I've said to you, 
No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. That's effectual calling. All that God calls to salvation, all that Jesus invites to salvation in his predestinating foreknowledge, come. You say, well, how does that work out practically? Back to Romans chapter eight. Remember, Paul talks about calling without a lot of explanation, just like he did predestination and foreknowledge. Not a lot of footnote, not a lot of explanation. There's, there's no appendix at the end of the Bible that explains this passage. Why? Because he's not intending it to be a theological argument. He's intending it to be comforted. Comforting. What he's saying is, he loved you before the world began. He predestined you to become like his son. He called out and you responded. Look at what God has done for you. Look at what he's done for me. God has not only predestined a believer, but given him or her a call to salvation to which we have responded. Now, I know what some people will say. Well, well how do you know if you're elect? How do you know if, you, if you're really chosen? We looked at it last week from Peter. You believe and you obey. No one will believe who's not chosen. I had a discussion a few weeks ago with two of my budding theologian sons. And it was, it was, it was hard not to laugh because I heard myself in every one of their, their com, uh, comments and questions. I, I just heard, I, I said, I remember that. I remember that. I remember thinking that. I remember asking that. Well, I, Dad, how, how can you know for sure that you're elect or chosen? I said, well, well, you believe. But I won't believe unless I'm elect. Well, you would only believe because you're elect. Yeah, but how can I know for sure? What if I'm not elect? Well, do you believe? Yes, then you're elect. How do you, and it was just this wonderful circle of, uh, and I was thinking, I remember, I, actually, I can still ask those questions pretty, pretty well. The mere fact that we believe the gospel is the work of God and should give us personal perspective and comfort. These next two links will go quickly but I want, you, I want to show you how they, they come together so that we can be comforted by them. Foreknown, predestined, called. Number four, justified. Justified. Verse 30, those whom he called, remember, we're still, still talking about God as the subject of these verbs, and we're still talking about people as the object. Those whom he called, he also justified, made righteous, saved, one of the uh, more sobering moments I've ever had as a pastor was about two years ago, a year and a half ago, uh, I had preached Romans 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, and I was standing right down there, and I won't say who it is because they will likely be here on this uh, Sunday. It was a sweet moment. They said, Rick, this justification by grace alone through faith alone, you've said that every sermon for the last year. And I said, so has Paul. He takes five chapters to say this in so many ways. He even takes a whole chapter, chapter four, to illustrate it with Abraham. Justification, that we are made right, justified before God. Get this, by believing and that's all. No works involved at all. Works follow, works don't precede our salvation. 
Romans 3.28. Mark it, underline it, highlight it, know it, memorize it. Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's the message. And it almost sounds what what we call antinomian, anti-law. You can do anything you want. You can't do anything to be saved. You can't do anything to put yourself beyond the reach of God's saving grace. All you have to do is believe that he justified us by the work of Jesus on the cross and by raising him from the dead. And you have to stop and say, that's, that's it? That's all I contribute to salvation is to believe that he did all for salvation? That's it. And it should make you feel a little uncomfortable as the legalist that we all are is to say, well, hang on a second. I need to do more. I need to try harder. I need to be better. He did it all. Notice who the subject is in all of these verbs. He justified us. And we spent great pains to say there's, there's a difference between justification by imputation of righteousness and justification by infusion of righteousness. The Protestant uh, theology of justification is that God declares us, de- actually just says by declaration of divine fiat, you are now righteous Because I have given the righteousness of my son to your account. Taken your sin and put it on him at the cross. I have declared you righteous. That's imputation. It's actually a financial term. I take something out of the ledger. I put something in the ledger. It's very simple. Infusion, which is the Catholic doctrine of justification, says God infuses you with righteousness. He gives you enough internal righteousness so that he wants you to get righteouser. More righteous, more good, more holy, more godly. And by the way, if you don't get there in this life, don't worry. Because you can keep working it out after life. And if you don't have enough wherewithal to do it after life, don't worry. Someone else can pray for that for you or give enough money that God will say, okay, now I'll let them out of purgatory. Man is justified by faith apart from any works Romans 5.1 summarizes those first five chapters. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that all of us are internal legalists. And if we're not careful, we can understand grace and become internal libertines, which means, well, if he's saved us, and if all I have to do is believe and it has nothing to do with my works, then I shouldn't worry about that. I can do anything I want, which is exactly the conclusion Paul expected us to make at the end of chapter 5. So chapter 6, he said, what should we say? Should we just keep sinning and the grace would increase? May it never be. The balance of that is incredible. Justification is an act of God. Our sole responsibility is to believe the gospel. No one is good enough to be heaven. No one is good enough to save themselves. No one tries hard enough. He's done it all. He alone. And believing what he has done, that's justification. He did it. Go back. Listen, don't underestimate. God is the one who foreknew. God is the one who predestined. God is the one who calls. God is the one who justifies. Which leads us to the last part where he says, hey, you're in the middle of a trial. It's okay. 
And you know what the final exhortation about it's okay is? You know this already, right? Heaven. Those whom these he, excuse me, these whom he justified, who he saved, he also glorified. Now, let's go back to uh, 10th grade English unless you're not in the 10th grade and then reach ahead to 10th grade, okay? Look at the verb here. What tense is the verb glorified? Past. Is that not a little odd? He glorified us. He brought us to heaven. Is anyone in heaven yet? Were the Romans to whom he was speaking in heaven yet? Well, this tense is, is, is awkward. He also glorified you. Well, well, hang on, I'm not there yet. How does that work out? Remember what Paul is doing. He's describing all that God has done and is doing and will do from God's perspective, not from the perspective of our experience. That is such good news. In the mind of God, we are already in heaven. That's an odd thought. We are already glorified. If he's outside of time, Alpha, Omega, sees from the beginning to the end. In God's economy, we're already there and here at the same time. If you can figure that out, would you just come to the prayer room? I'll come and talk to you afterwards and you can... You can counsel me on how that works. He has also glorified us. It also gives us the surety. He, our glorification is as assured as our justification, our calling, our predestination, and God's foreknowledge of us. That brings us full circle. Back to verse 18. Remember, this is all intended to comfort us in difficult times. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with, wow, this looks familiar, doesn't it? The glory that is to be revealed to us. Who's the us? Go down to verse 28. Those who are called according to his purpose. We just found out we're called. So all of this is sure. It's sure. Verses 23 to 25. Not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our final adoption as sons, our glorification. Then he tells us exactly what he means, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Our hope is in heaven, which we have not experienced or seen yet. For if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. Can I just confess to you, I think one of the, one of the most troubling parts of my own evaluation of my own life is that so much of my perspective is oriented around enjoying doing the, and doing the most I can in this life. Some of it, I hope, spiritual and good, but some of it, you know, fleshly. Rather than eagerly the word is anticipate, not just wait. Eagerly anticipating our home going. I mean, can I ask you a sobering question? Do you, do you want to go to heaven? Now, if you say yes, but later, that's the problem. 
can you say, come, Lord, quickly today? Is that, is that a part of your, your evaluation? Is that a part of your category? That's what this is saying. We eagerly await for it because he has already done that in his mind, in his economy. Wow. What is he saying then all together? You, it's okay. He started in eternity past. He's going to get you to eternity future. Whatever you're going through, compare that to what's coming. It's going to be okay. I think all of this is actually a commentary on what Paul told the Philippians. He says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He'll perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will not leave us hanging. You're in the middle of something that's a difficulty? Do you trust that God is in it? You say, well, hang on. Eternity passed, foreknowledge, predestination called, justified even, got work of God, eternity, future, glorification. What am I doing? What, what, what about now? You do everything in your power to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what the key to this verse is. He's making us like Jesus. Can you hear God say it's okay in the middle of a trial? We have an example of Paul hearing that. His last letter, he's in prison. He's in a Mamertine prison. Um, those of us who went to Italy a few years ago went to that Mamertine prison. It's likely the one that Paul was uh, incarcerated in. It's the only one off of the forum there in Rome. So it would have been um, uh, highly unlikely they have mo- would have moved Paul anywhere further than that. It's a small little room. It's smaller than half the size of this stage. And, and you sit in there, and that, that's where Paul was. There was a hole in the top that would drop things down. And at one point, he sent this letter out to Timothy. And this is what he says. He knows he's about to die. God has told him this is it. Be sober in all things, Timothy. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Paul is staring death straight in the eyes. And he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but those Christians at Mission Road Bible Church too. All those who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Do we eagerly wait for it? Is that glorification something that's on our radar that we're even excited about? You know, if we really believe in the resurrection, if we really believe in glorification, what would that do to our time, our money, our savings account, our investment, our neighbors, our children, our conversations? 
The guy standing across from us when we're pumping gas. What would that change if we really put our anchor in this reality? Are you confident in God saying it's okay? Harry Ironside, in, well, actually in his um, excellent commentary on Romans, um, James Boyce tells the story of Harry Ironside. Harry Ironside, let me just quote Boyce. Harry Ironside told a story about an older Christian who was asked to give his testimony. He told how God had sought him out and found him how God had loved him, called him, saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, and healed him, a great witness to grace, the grace and power and glory of God. But after the meeting, a rather legalistic brother took him aside and criticized his testimony. He said, I appreciate all you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. You should have mentioned something about your part. Oh yes, the older Christian replied. I apologize for that. I am so sorry. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away from God. And his part was running after me until he caught me. Paul is saying it's okay. How do you know it's okay? He started it. He will finish it. This doesn't last beyond this life. It's okay. It's all for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You read a passage like this and you just have to say why? Why would someone say no to this? If you're not a believer, why, why wouldn't you want this? I would just beg you to have the assurance of all eternity because of what God has done and what God will do by believing in what Christ has done, what God did in Christ by raising him from the dead, and the free gift offer of salvation. What kind of fool would say no to that? And for those of us who know Christ, wow. It's okay. You have confidence. It's okay. Don't fret. Don't worry. Believe. Trust and obey, and let's do that together here at Mission Road. Let's pray together. You foreknow, you predestine, you call, you justify, and you glorify those who believe. Father, we feel like the father in Mark who said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Bolster our confidence. Help us to understand and see behind the curtain of this world, above the clouds of the storm, 
to understand that you are there, you are not silent, and you care, and it's okay because of you. Give us the assurance and confidence that this passage is intending for us to have. Father, forgive our faithless moments. Forgive us when we doubt. Forgive us when we fret and worry. Bring us to Paul's words from your pen and know that it's okay. We're grateful for the privilege of studying together and I would ask again if if someone is wrestling with these issues, give them the faith and grace to believe and the confident assurance that it's only okay because of Christ. We pray this because of your grace in Jesus' name, amen.